This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. One of network television's best-known personalities opens up about a very ugly string of racial slurs in public. I was headed back to Atlanta, so I was walking through the airport, and the first thing that happened was an older gentleman, as I was walking past him, stopped, looked at me, took off his mask, and said to me, Ni hao, ching chong. And as bad as that one was... That's not it. As CNN's Amara Walker walked through Louis Armstrong Airport in New Orleans, there were more within a span of one hour. Listen, to, to be honest, I haven't gotten these kinds of ignorant, hateful remarks in years. And the fact that it happened to me three times in one day, we're in an environment where people feel like it's okay to be vocal about their racist views. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Talking about the big banks in America, particularly Citibank, Chase, and Bank of America, making an attempt to narrow the wealth gap. And Julie Steinberg from the Wall Street Journal, who wrote a piece about what the banks are trying to do, will join us to talk about the effort. What you have here is a thing called supply chain finance that helps big corporate companies, say like a Boeing or Coca-Cola, pay their suppliers earlier using the help of the banks. And those suppliers tend to be smaller or medium-sized businesses. And we'll discuss with her what are the long-term efforts, what are the drawbacks, and will it really work? That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And this is Colors. JJ, our guest this week is Julie Steinberg. She's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and she wrote a piece talking about the big banks in America, particularly Citibank, Chase, and Bank of America, making an attempt to narrow the wealth gap between uh, the races, between blacks and whites in particular. And the way they're going to do that is through some special terms. Julie, you write for the Wall Street Journal. You understand financial things a lot better than I do, even though I read your paper every day. Can you explain uh, what the big banks are doing to try to narrow this racial wage gap? Absolutely. So they've embarked on a lot of different measures to try to narrow this economic wealth gap. And some of it is directed at communities. Some of it is directed at businesses. The initiative I wrote about is directed at businesses. And effectively, what you have here is a thing called supply chain finance that helps big corporate companies, say like a Boeing or Coca-Cola, pay their suppliers earlier using the help of the banks. And those suppliers tend to be smaller or medium-sized businesses. And what these banks are proposing to do is effectively give these suppliers a discount on the rate that they pay for this type of service. Meaning a discount 
simply to try to level the playing field, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Well, when when I we teased this uh, a couple of episodes ago, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, JJ, but you said something to me about, yeah, sure, they say that now, but is this going to last? Does this really seem like something that is because right now this is a hot topic is is what the banks are doing for publicity reasons, or is this sincere and something you think will be around for years to come? It's a good question. And I think when I spoke to the banks, I asked them what spurred these sort of programs. And they all said that, well, they'd been thinking about doing something about financial inclusion for a while and, you know, we're, we're thinking about things. But it was really the racial justice protest this summer that helped uh, bring things together. So in the wake of that, they came up with these programs and they've been embarking on them. They're still sort of in pilot testing mode. So obviously, time will tell whether they stick around, but they certainly have been very vocal about the fact that they want to make sure smaller suppliers, in this case, uh, minority-owned businesses, uh, feel like they're being given an extra advantage after years in which banks either steered them toward products with higher interest rates or terms many other uh, terms many couldn't afford or they were denied loans entirely. So this comes after decades of that. Julie, that was my question, um, but you've answered it already, and I have other questions, so I'll just move on to number two on the list. And that number two is, what about when the heat in the kitchen gets a little hot for these banks? Because a part of the reason why they're doing this is to level the playing field, but then there are going to be others who are complaining that this is not equal. Do you get the sense they're prepared for that? So it's interesting because I've actually gotten a lot of reader responses that sort of you know, break down into two camps. I've had a lot of people express concerns along those lines saying, well, this is not an equal scenario. This is not an equal situation. Why should they be getting something just because they're a certain ethnicity or skin color? And then others have said, well, we need to make up for the fact that people were denied a chance at upward mobility, upward economic mobility. So this is a way to redress those. So I think certainly the banks can expect those sorts of responses. If, if, you know, if I was getting them, I'm sure the banks are getting them too. Uh, but they're probably prepared for that because they know that this is a, a switch in policy after all those years. Yeah, you know, that, that's interesting because that was going to be my question too. So JJ, you and I, you and I have each swap questions. <laughs> yeah. um, it, my thought about it is, um, to me, the reason I think this is going to last, and maybe I'm, you know, as often I get accused of being naive, but um I, until you just said that, Julie, I didn't think there'd be a lot of whining about this. There was a time that whenever you tried to do something like this, then whichever group was not being favored would say, wait, that you're being discriminatory. That's that's being biased. That's that's not right. That's not what we believe in. But because the situation in the country has changed, something JJ and I constantly wrestle about is that. Is this change permanent this time or is this change only a temporary fad? The whole country's awareness of race and trying to do better. Um, I, to me, what's different now is that I, I would think there'd be a lot less whining about this than there would have been a decade ago. Is that a fair assessment? I certainly think awareness has grown and I don't think I would expect to receive the same sort of notes these days that I would have maybe had I written this article five years ago. There does seem to be a lot more awareness on behalf of some of the people who have written in saying, oh, yeah, I could see the, how the banks are doing X to, to correct Y. So definitely, I think people are more 
aware of what's been happening, if only because, you know, newspapers are covering it every single day for for several months now. But I, I mean, I'm curious how you guys see it. Well, um, I guess the way I feel about it is, and, and it's what I was alluding to, is that I do think there has been a sea change. I think that people have finally become aware of the disadvantage of being born black in America, um, what it really is like. I think it's very easy. And I'm, I'm somebody, I'm white. I grew up in a white world. And I've, JJ and I have been friends for 30 years. We've been discussing this stuff for a long time. But it wasn't really until this year, and frankly, doing this podcast, where I've heard things that I was just shocked to hear that was go- that were going on in, you know, from the last decade or, you know, since 2000. I mean, stuff that where I thought we had really moved on. So I think that probably what these banks are doing, um, first of all, it's, it's good for them. Uh, it's good uh, for them for, uh, you know, publicity reasons and, and uh, public relations reasons and everything else. But it's also just good in general because the more they help build up Another sector of clientele, black owned businesses in this case, uh, the more customers they're going to have. Maybe they make a little less off those customers for a while, but the day will come in the future when perhaps we won't have to do that because everything will be more or less equal. Um, So but again, I, I can be very. I could be a Pollyanna about these things. I I just I'm I'm a natural born optimist. And so I think that there has been a real change. Uh, I I don't know, Julie, if you do you see it as well? Well, well, let me jump in before she comes back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, You know, a part of the issue for me in, in this process in looking at what they're doing is that people change. You know, we've been talking about change a lot during the course of this podcast so far, specifically when it comes to uh, leadership and 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 organizations. Um, you know, people are going to change that run these banks, um, and the ideas change with these people. People have a short memory in this country uh, when it comes to almost everything, except something that is you know unique to them. Big banks, big organizations. There quite often, you know, there there are changes. So, you know, that is something that I just am very skeptical about, and I'm going to have to wait and see if that holds up as time passes. As the CEO of Citigroup and the CEO of Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase changes, how these policies are going to work. There's also the question about whether or not they are in places where black owned businesses that need them can get to them are 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 there are there do they have locations in these communities that most significantly need them and and i suppose those questions would have to be answered before i could say okay i'm on board that this is going to be a long-term issue a long-term plan i think that's a really good point and i mean what the banks were saying to me is you know we've come up with new technology to help ease the way and you know five years ago ten years ago maybe your small and medium-term suppliers wouldn't be able to get access to some of this financing but we've made it so they have technology to access the platform it's a lot more democratically applied so that's one area to look at and then to your point about whether the leaders in charge are also thinking about this um what they pointed out to me was that this isn't just an initiative being run by the banks, but that they heard from their corporate clients saying, we want to do this too, probably because they have their own diversity goals internally, right? That 
also can dictate whether or not they can get business elsewhere, bid for certain projects based on whether they've fulfilled diversity. So I guess if you have buy-in from both a corporate client as well as the bank, does that increase its chances of succeeding? Probably better than if you only had buy-in from one of them, I would suppose. Yeah, and, and I, I'd like to connect this with a previous podcast we did with Michelle Singletary, who's a nationally syndicated uh, financial advice columnist. Uh, and we did a program with her talking about reparations. And I had said that until I read her article on reparations, I really didn't understand how it would work. Well, in some ways, this is how reparations work, because this is these banks saying, look, we owe it to these communities to do something and we're going to do it. So this because, JJ, when we were discussing this, we kept talking about, OK, what are the mechanics of reparations? Well, this is one of them right here. Am I right about that? I just have difficulty with this because there are too many variables in here that could throw this off the rails. When this discussion regarding reparations gets started in earnest, one of the first things people are going to point to and say is, oh, well, the banks are already doing this and these organizations are already doing this. So what more do we need to do? And I just don't think uh, I know that that's going to happen either way. And I do think what's happening is a good thing. I just hope that the banks and everyone else are prepared to defend against that kind of criticism when it comes up, because it is going to come up eventually. You know, the, this, I'd never heard the term JJ. I'd, and, ne- and forgive me for this. I've never heard. I had never before we did this podcast heard the term black banks. And I can't remember who the guest was that first brought up. It might have been Gretchen Soren, someone like that, who uh, who mentioned black banks. And so I started reading about them. And I just didn't even know there was an entirely different set of banks who were trying to remedy this very problem. Well, you, the you, black banks, you which tend to be little banks, can't really solve the problem problem that Citibank, Chase and Bank of America can because they're the big banks and they're the ones that set the markets. So to me, this is just it's 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 it would be great if them black banks didn't have to exist because the big banks treated people equally and and maybe showed some favoritism in some cases to to um, make communities more equal. Well, I just that's my take. There's a really big quote, black bank in Washington, and it's been here forever. It's called Industrial Bank. I think they changed their name not too long ago, but I'm surprised that you hadn't heard of them. But they No, I never heard of them called black banks, for sure. I I mean, I'd never just never heard of that word before. And I I never really understood the need for it, though, because we've been doing, you know, this has been very educational for me. I hope it has been for the audience, but I've learned a lot and I thought I was pretty open minded and read a lot and, you know, thought a lot about race relations. I have pretty much my whole life and I've learned a lot. Question for Julie. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, please. I think the point about scale is an important one, um, but I also want to hark back to what JJ talked about earlier about whether or not this is going to last. We had looked at some of the lender financing application decisions, so meaning whether or not Black-owned, Hispanic-owned, Asian-owned, white-owned businesses were able to get the financing that they sought. And we looked at a paper that showed that effectively there was a much different rate um, depending on whether or not you are a white owned business. And this was even as we had seen some of those programs, maybe not to the same degree that they're being unrolled today, but definitely some have been in place over the past several years. So it's a good question of whether or not they can actually you know, change things simply because you have the program in place. I guess I would like to ask this question, and I know you don't have the answer for these people, but I'm just wondering if you maybe perhaps it came up during your conversation with them. You know, there have been situations throughout our 
fairly recent history um, where there have been big protests and there have been there's been big concern about the way uh, the inequity, the, 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 the lack of availability of capital in um, minority communities. So was it the George Floyd Black Lives Matter uh, protest that triggered this? What do you think, based on what you got from them, triggered this in the, in the, to this scale? Some of the banks had said that they had been thinking about ideas like this, that they had been working on financial inclusion before, but nothing had really coalesced into something uh, sustainable. And they, they told me that it was in some part coincidence, but in some part dedicated because of the racial justice protests this summer um, owing to George Floyd. So I do think those were the triggering events here and sort of brought the banks to the realization that, OK, we, you know, this is something people are asking for. This is what our corporate clients want. Um, this is a very public issue now. This is this is now on the news every single day. And that's um, definitely helped propel things along, I think. I mean, I think that's that's true. I, I, we would not be doing this podcast yeah. had uh, the George Floyd thing. I mean, that's what that's what triggered you and you know you and I decide to do this again, uh, yeah. JJ. I'm not sure, Julie, that you would be doing this story or this story would have become such a you know a prominent place in the Wall Street Journal had we not been talking for the last several months about race in America. So yeah, I mean, I think I, I think the answer to JJ's question is yeah, it's. That's what that's what got everybody talking about things that we had not talked about comfortably or uncomfortably for years. Yeah, that's the reason. The reason I asked that question is because one of the people on our last our previous podcast, Thomas Warren, asked me that question or, or maybe he was just kind of thinking about it out loud. He's he was saying, why was it George Floyd? Why wasn't it um, Rodney King or wasn't why wasn't it La- Laquan McDonald or why wasn't it um, someone else? Because there have been numerous situations in the last five, 10 years. Rodney King obviously was 30 years ago, but since then, that could have triggered this. And uh, you're right, um, I guess, Julie, because they said everything just kind of came together. But I'd like to ask you this question. Do you have any questions in the back of your mind about this um do you have any any concerns about the the longevity of this or the viability of this what what are your biggest concerns about this process uh, i think as a journalist we're sort of trained to be inherently um inquisitive i suppose about how things get implemented and how they're systematically going to be unveiled and how they'll be put into place. So I'll be curious to see once these programs are put into place, how many clients are they uh, actually get signed up? How many suppliers will feel the impact? Um, I'd love to see a breakdown between the ethnicities and um, uh, racial profiles of the suppliers who eventually do get the discounts. So it's definitely something that I would want to say, okay, I would like to track this to see what effect it has had upon the community. And then that's the, the corollary of that is, well, how has that money actually been put back in, into minority-owned businesses? Did this have an effect? So I think those are questions and answers to be seen over time. And I'll have to check back maybe in a year from now. I can come back on the podcast to see if mm-hmm. there has been any lasting change. Uh, but definitely, I will want to be very aware of the metrics that are being used. 
Yeah, um, you know, I think that would be a great idea to do to do in a year or so. Um, and, and part of the reason why is one of the things in your article you wrote, uh, technology has been helped, has helped widen the pool of suppliers. And you've talked about it earlier in this podcast. But, you know, one of the things that's a problem in, 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 in many minority communities is access to that technology. And that's a part of the reason why I asked that question a little earlier about the availability of these products. So hopefully that will have been remedied in some of these places, although I'm not quite sure how that would happen and if the banks would be involved in that, if it's a part of their plan or not. Chris? I think we've kind of arrived at the same conclusion on it. I, you know, we'll see. Um, but I just, you know, again, I do think that there has been a sea change. And, and I, you know, what we really aspire to eventually is not to have to have um, this is kind of like financial affirmative action, if you will. Can we just call it that? Uh, and we aspire to the time we don't have to have that. And I think in, in I don't know, JG, how it feels to you, but I think affirmative action for a large part has worked very well in institutions where it used to be very difficult for black students to get into because big universities, prestigious universities said, no, we're going to, we're going to make sure that we let people in of different colors because we need to be a more diverse school. That's a part of the reason why I have these questions. And I had these questions that seemed like doubts today because affirmative action was never and still in many cases, in many quarters, has never been fully accepted by people in the United States. There are groups that still say, you know, it's 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 not fair. It's 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 not beneficial. Uh, so I think I do think what Julie has done here uh, by doing this work, it's very important work. And it's uh, it's it's actually some really enlightening work here uh, that needs to continue. And we need to keep continue to focus on that. Yep, I agree. Uh, Julie, thank you so much for being on our podcast. We appreciate it. It's been very interesting. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Colors. Hello, my name is Juan Pablo Sanchez. I was born in Medellin, Colombia, and therefore identify as Hispanic and or Latino. When it comes to talking about quote unquote race, I believe it's, it's important for us to even further the conversation and explore more so racism than it is race. The reason for that is because when it comes to understanding why minorities or underserved communities aren't represented, it's more so because of the systemic racism that prevents individuals of diverse backgrounds to be in positions to influence and really empower our communities. My name is Tisa Hargan Robinson and I'm an African American female. I think racism is as American as apple pie. It just isn't as obvious as segregation of the Confederate flag. It's subtle. It's never ever learning about Juneteenth or maybe learning just two African American history events, but never learning any African history but all European history. It's band-aids always being the color of Caucasian skin. It's never being able to find stockings or shoes that match your natural skin color. It's having the police called on you for doing nothing. It may not be as obvious as someone walking around with a Ku Klux Klan costume on, but it's definitely still there. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. You know, JJ, what I think is good about that interview with Julie is, uh, and why I think that maybe there won't be the pushback, 
is there's a saying among boaters, as you know, I'm a boater now, is that a rising tide lifts all boats. So if these banks, these big banks temporarily um, give favorable, more favorable conditions on loans to black businesses, the black businesses eventually prosper, become part of the economy and become part of the rising tide. So that's why I think I think people maybe have caught on to that in a way that they wouldn't have 10 or 20 years ago. I agree with you, and I think it's a good idea, and I'm I'm really glad that 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 Julie did that reporting because you know I wasn't aware of that um, primarily because I don't do a lot of uh, I don't focus a lot on uh, the markets, et cetera. Because of that, you know, I'm kind of my head's always buried in national security, although that is a significant part of it, though, right now. But one of the things, one of the enduring reasons why I'm always skeptical of these things is because things always look good on paper. They always you, you you can you can build a championship sports team on paper. Um, you know, remember the movie or the story Moneyball? Yes. You can do that. You know, it's, it's possible to do it. But how often are you successful at doing that? And you really do need to have uh, some very, very dedicated people that are going to be around for a while doing that. That's my only concern about any of that is that will this interest continue? As I mentioned on the last podcast to you, I'm very concerned about whether or not people are really bought into social justice and and racial justice right now. Ah, well, then let me let me ask you this question, because it's 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 off the financial topic for a second. But it's a I was just thinking about this almost two years ago. The story came out about the governor of Virginia. For those of you not from Virginia, his name is Ralph Northam. He's the Democratic governor of Virginia. He's white. And pictures came up of him in a yearbook from when he was in medical school. He's also a doctor. When he was in medical school and he was in blackface. He's a white guy in blackface. And there was a big brouhaha about it. I opined on the radio that I thought he should resign. I thought that that was not in, in you know, this would be in 2019. This was not uh, the way a governor of Virginia should be seen. Admittedly, it was a long time ago, but still, I can tell you when I was in college, I didn't walk around in blackface. So I, 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 I do you think that had that those pictures come up after George Floyd, and once this whole recognition has taken place now that, that we need to do something about race, would Ralph Northam have survived the way he has? I do not think so. And as we've discussed on several occasions, optics are everything, mm-hmm. especially now. You know, we talked about the Teddy Roosevelt statue in front of the, the museum in, in, yes. in New York. If I remember correctly, in Northam's case... After saying that he did do that, I thought that he came back later and said, no, we haven't we've investigated this and it wasn't actually me. Well, he went. Yeah, he he tried to have it three ways because one of the person was dressed as a Klan member and one of them was dressed in blackface. And he said, yeah, I'm one of those. And then he said, well, I'm not sure. I'm look. I, I don't know about you. I'd remember if I did that. I'm sorry. That's just not that long ago. Um, so I. I, I, yeah. I, I, I think in the end he got away with it and, and because people change and, and he's not a bad person and all that. But even so, I would think that in today's 
heightened sense about this are, are, you know, being a little bit more sensitive to these things. I, I'm not sure he would have skated as easy as he did. I'm not oh, saying no. it was easy for him personally, but he's still the governor of Virginia. And I would have bet money when I read that story. I even said to my wife, I said, oh, this guy's going to have to resign. Yeah, he was very close, very close. And you know what? There are going to be more situations like that if we continue down the path that we're going, because there's almost for a while there, there was zero tolerance for that kind of discovery. The surviving that kind of discovery was just not very likely. Just today, there's this new business about Johns Hopkins. Um, and we know what Johns Hopkins has done for the world in so many different ways, in a positive way. But now we hear that Johns Hopkins owned four slaves. So, you know, they're thinking about that. They're talking about what they're going to have to do about that. And as, again, you know, we say this, or at least I say this, things change. People change, names change, positions change, and all of that. Um, but, you know, before we get too far um, gone here on this program, we we always tell people if you have anything you want to ask us about uh, or complain about or whatever, just uh, send us an email at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. We'll give you that again in a little bit. But Chris, there's an, a guy by the name of Ahmed Omar. He wrote to us and said, um, Sasa Akil is young and maybe bright, but in my opinion, she is misguided. Uh, he he was referring to Sasa Akil, who's 17 years old, and she started this project called A Man Was Lynched Yesterday, where she's mm-hmm. sending out homemade, handmade postcards to people and asking them to write to their their elected leaders to express their opinions and concerns about racial injustice. I can't for the life of me figure out how Ahmed Omar finds that she's misguided. I can't I can't see that. No, I don't either. As I as I told you, I mean, I, I she said uh, that she thought she was, what did she say? She felt like an oddball or something like she that. I, I think she's terrific. I mean, that was, she's, uh, what was she, 16, 17 years old, and yes. she started this project? She's terrific. Yeah, no, I, um, and I just kind of wonder, you know, what Mr. Omar's thinking is, if it has anything at all to do with uh, her, um, her age or, you know, her know. point of view. If you're listening, we'd like to know. Write back to us and let us know. Yeah. He sent me one, too, by the way. It's it's uh, from the same guy. Yeah. And this was the conversation that you and I had about um, we were talking about the Black Lives Matter flag in Jacksonville, that whole story. And then uh, we started talking about what are you going to do about it? Because I said that one of the things you always say to me is, yeah, but what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, I will pledge this, that if I see, say, somebody that I know and I feel comfortable, I'm not going to go up to a stranger and I see that he's got a Confederate battle flag on his truck or something or boat or whatever. um, I'm going to say, why do you have that up? You know, that 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 can be offensive to people. Is there any particular I'd like to talk about, you know, why do you do that? And that's something that I wouldn't have done before, but I will do it now. And uh, the same guy that you're talking about, Ahmed, wrote to me, he said, well, if. I had the Confederate flag and you came up to me and told me it's offensive. I would take you to lunch. I would explain the flag Hmm. and I would still be your friend. (laughs) So that's that's not a bad answer to that. The point is, that's a discussion now that the two of us can have in the end, because I'm white. And let's say the guy with the Confederate battle flag is white. 
I'm going to say, yeah, but the discussion between the two of us is not the issue. We've got to bring in somebody to whom that flag is a symbol of hate in order for this really to be an effective discussion. Well, it's a symbol of hate to you, too. Right. Say what? It's a symbol of hate to you, too. Right. It is to me, but different than it is to you because because um, I'm white. I mean, I it, it, it. Come on, brother. No, 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 no. I can't let you get away with that. All right. Go ahead. Yes. It's a city. Yes. It bothers me a lot when I see it. I have to be honest with you. Yes, it does. Because Sorry. it reminds me of a time that is the lowest time in our uh, in American history, the Civil War in particular, and the part of the Civil War that was fought over slavery. So, yeah. yes, you're right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you are one of the smartest people I know that have that, that's actually been a talk show host. And, you know, that, <laughs> you know, no, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. <laughs> being, being, being a talk show host, you have to know a lot of different things. You have to know a lot of different topics. But to get back to the point very briefly, um, you know what that does to people like me. You know how yes. how people That's of color right. feel yeah. about that flag. And yes. despite what people say about it, um, this, the, the, despite the defenses that people use, you know exactly what it means to me and to people like me. So you understand that. And I think you could have that conversation with that guy yourself without having a person of color or a minority offended by it. Um, but it's up to you whether or not you want to do it. One, one last thing. We got one email from Christine. And Christine says, hello, I love your show. I love the fact you guys ask the questions that you do. My question is this. Do you guys have to talk so fast? <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, we're broadcasters, <laughs> Christine, maybe we can slow down a little bit, <laughs> but these podcasts will grow very, very long. And will you spend an hour listening to a 30 minute podcast, Christine? I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. (laughs) And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. The next episode of Colors will be Christmas Day 2020, the last show of the year. And on that show, we'll take a look back at the best of 2020. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. If you would like to contact us, we'd appreciate any suggestions for guests, uh, topic ideas, um, criticism you have of the program, of the podcast. You can write to us at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. So as we go, we want to say thank you to some people, to our friend Lau Petrilli, Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Mike Goldrick, Beverly Kirk, Jocelyn James, we see you on Twitter. Our Twitter crew at Podcast Colors is small but tight. You're welcome to join us. Thank you to Dimitri Sotis, Gretchen Soren, Shout Mouse Press, Tiffany Arnold, Sasa Akil, Julia Ziegler, Joe Loxley, Greg Strassel, Beth Gibbs, Roz Whitaker-Heck, Earl Uriah Robinson, Rick Massimo, Stephanie Gaines Bryant, Thetford Collins, Mark Recton, and for the music, Jesse Gallagher and Cosmic and Nico's staff. And of course, thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, just keep talking to each other. And just as important, 
Keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.